0: Welcome to the I Believe podcast, a podcast created and funded by Acure Insight. Here, we'll be sharing information and insights on treatment, research, and living with ocular melanoma. Thanks for joining us today, and I hope you'll be back soon. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Danae, and I am here, uh, the host of the I Believe podcast hosted by Akira Insight. So thank you so much for joining us over on Facebook, over on YouTube, wherever you're coming from. I know today is a holiday for a lot of you. So thanks for being here and for supporting Paige and sharing her story. So I have Paige with me and she is coming to us all the way from Ontario, Canada. And we're, that's Ontario, right? Okay. Yes. So we're super excited to have her share her story. And if you follow our Instagram page, you may have seen that she has shared her story earlier this year, but we wanted to give her the chance to come on and like actually do an interview. We may or may not today be joined by one more person. We were hoping to be able to do a dual interview, but Mike had work come up. So if Mike ends up joining us today, great. If he doesn't, then we will catch him later. So this is Paige. um, And I'm going to kind of let her briefly introduce herself, kind of like where you're from what life is, you know, what life looks like for you right here, and then um, we'll go from there.
1: Perfect. Hi, everyone. Uh, My name's Paige. Wow, from Australia. Hi, Deborah. Um, I actually recently had a last name change. Um, I got married a year ago. My name is Paige Thompson, and as Danae said, I'm from Waterloo, Ontario, which is in Canada. Um, life for me looks like living with my husband and my two stepkids, um, they're nine and 13 and they're just heading
0: back to school tomorrow. So it's been a fairly busy few days. Okay. Well, that does sound super busy. You said you have nine and 13 are your stepkids. Those are some crazy ages. (laughs) My kids are like eight. He turns eight this month, which he keeps telling me every single day when his birthday is coming up. So (laughs) the countdown is real. Okay, so Paige, I know just from you sharing your story on Instagram before that you were diagnosed with ocular melanoma, but can you kind of explain what led to your diagnosis and kind of what exactly what you were diagnosed with as far as your tumor?
1: Yeah, um, I guess I have a pretty interesting story about my diagnosis. I had, um, this is back in 2017, and I had just been for my regular yearly optometry checkup. Um, I'm pretty sure at the time my motivation there was to get some new glasses, something trendier. And they told me my eyes looked perfect, that I had 20-20 vision and there was no concerns. They said I was young, so I did not need my eyes dilated. So fast forward a week, I was traveling a lot at the time for work and I was in PEI, which is a small province in Canada. And I scratched my eye pretty badly on the beach. And then it was still bothering me when I returned from my work trip. So I ended up calling that same optometrist to see if they could squeeze me in while I was home from work. And they said no, they were full. So they referred me somewhere else in the same small town. So I did go see a second optometrist about a week apart. And he was really focused on my right eye, even though my eye was scratched on the left one. Um, So I found that to be a bit odd. So I started to ask questions like, is there something wrong with my right eye? Like it's very clearly injured on the left. And he said he did not want to panic me. He was seeing something that could just be a freckle. Um, but he stared at it for a really long time. They did extra dilation drops. And then he ended up referring me to an ophthalmologist at OCC Eye Care in Mississauga. So a few towns over from where I was living at the time. And from there, they saw me another three times because they didn't know what they were seeing either. And then that optometrist ended up eventually referring me to Princess Margaret Cancer Center. So my whole diagnosis kind of spanned between the months of April and July in 2017 so there was a lot of wait time um, and just a lot of uncertainty but everyone kept telling me not to worry that I was super young I was 27 at the time and that there was no way it could be cancer this type of eye cancer was so rare that I would make it to the consult and they would kind of laugh it off and tell me I had a freckle
0: I just feel like nobody should say that. They should not. For one, they should never say, Mm -hmm. never worry. Because that just tells you, that's like the elephant in the room. We all just want to worry after that. And number two, I feel like nobody should ever tell you, don't worry, it's not cancer. You're too young to ever have cancer. Because that's not true. Like kids get cancer. If kids can get cancer, 27 year olds can get cancer, no matter the type. So, okay. So obviously you had a lot of uncertainty stretching over the course of this diagnosis. So how did you cope? Because that's a lot, like before you even were diagnosed, what kind of, what was, what was going on there emotionally for you?
1: You know what? I think I've like blacked out a lot of those memories. Um, initially, I think I did a lot of Google searching, which I know um, any of you listening that have ocular melanoma or eye cancer uh, is probably the worst thing you can do. Basically, Google tells you you're dying. So from the months of April till July, there was a lot of panic. Uh, I kept fairly busy with work trips and um, I was. I had convinced myself that there was absolutely nothing wrong. So I feel like I didn't worry until I hit July when I was wildly unprepared for that appointment. A friend of mine, Amy, brought me to that appointment in Toronto and it's a really fun city to be in. So we were making lunch plans of what we were going to do when we got out of my very quick consult appointment. Um, and I was just convinced that they were going to laugh and turn me away and that I would just go on living my life.
0: That's just crazy. Um, so obviously this appointment happened, you got diagnosed and you were diagnosed, uh, if I'm remembering correctly with ocular melanoma and it was within your eye. So it was within your right eye. Yes. And it, it was within the choroid, correct? So like the choroidal melanoma. Um, the way that I like always describe that to people is like, I talk about a carpet and how your retina is like a carpet and the tumor is like pushing up under the carpet. And it looks ridiculous because like your living room is ruined. There's this huge lump in the carpet, like, or small, or like, whether it's a rock or a giant tree root, like it's just not a fun thing to have under the carpet. (laughs) So that like usually is a good visual. So for anyone who needed that, you're welcome. Okay. So what was your initial reaction? Like you got diagnosed and they told you you had cancer what, like, what did you do?
1: I was sitting in a tiny, tiny room by myself with an ocular oncologist and his fellow. And the fellow went ahead and said, you have cancer. And I think from there, like I felt everything was going black. Like my world got really small. Um, I don't, it was like being underwater. I think I was in shock. Um, My friend was sitting in the waiting room at the time and the way Princess Margaret works is there's all these little treatment rooms. So you go in and out a lot and you're sent back to the waiting room. So they initially told me you have cancer going to go sit back down Um, we're going to call you back in and we're going to review treatment plans and then we're going to go through um, a bunch of tests so x-rays blood work all within that hospital so i know the initial conversation was very short and then i remember walking out to the waiting room bursting into tears And my friend, Amy was great. She marched around that hospital with me. Uh, We did blood work. We did x-rays. We did physicals. I think we were there all day, but my initial reaction was just, I was so upset. I cried a lot. Um, And then after that, after actually leaving the hospital, I got really angry for a while.
0: I feel like I totally can understand that just the anger. I think that's, that's a natural reaction. That's 100% a normal human reaction to this kind of a diagnosis. And especially I think coming from your circumstance where you had April, May, June, you had three months of, you know, potentially more than three months of people telling you it's going to be fine. This is never going to be cancer. You're going to be okay. Like, and so then to have all of those kind of built up expectations in your brain, totally dashed in one appointment. And one day, and to then just be thrust into everything, as far as you know, having all these tests done, evaluating everything. I mean, how great that they were able to do that, but that's overwhelming. That's so overwhelming.
1: Super overwhelming. Um, honestly, the initial like first six months after the diagnosis, during treatment, I don't think I would have been able to do any of it without my friends and my family members around me. That was kind of my way of coping. It was to latch on to someone else. Um, They would go to the appointment with me. They would take all the important information down or type notes, but it was, I was under this, like this feeling that I had to be with somebody else
0: when I was entering that hospital or doing anything. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So the treatment plans, obviously you said you were, you were talked to about treatment options. What were they giving you for the size of your tumor as far as options?
1: Yeah. Um, so from what I did reread my medical notes this morning, because four years later, it's quite fuzzy. Um, my tumor was small. I say was now because the blood supply is cut off and they have declared it dead, which is really exciting. It was five millimeters by five millimeters at the base, um, and the height was only one millimeter. So it was a very small tumor. um, So I got lucky there. The location, however, was a bit difficult. It's located near the um, vision center or the macula. So going into treatment, I knew my only option was plaque therapy or plaque radiation, um, at least at the hospital that I go to. I wasn't really given any other options to be honest um they did tell me we could watch and wait and then they informed me how um that would not be a good choice so they had that consent form for the plaque surgery right there going into surgery they weren't sure given the location of my tumor if they were going to have to cut the muscles that connect the eye i think it's called the strabismus muscles so that first procedure i went in feeling pretty Um, unsure of what was going to happen. And I remember waking up from that and asking right away, did they have to cut the muscles? Um, Because I knew if they did that, it kind of guarantees you that you're going to have double vision for a little while. And so I was really dreading that, but they did have to cut them. And then I did the plaque radiation for about six days. I think it was July 20th to July 26th.
0: Okay. So you had a relatively small tumor, as far as the thickness goes, plaque was your only option. And that's, you know, I feel like, I feel like it's, it's like a catch 22. It's like, well, you know, you have this and it, yes, it's small, but we're fairly certain, you know, we're like 90% certain that it's, that it's really cancer, which means we need to treat it. But you know, you could wait. It's like, okay, but I can't really, because everything you're telling me says that I can't. Okay. So you had the plaque and how was this experience for you? Like for plaque? I know everybody's has, it seems like it's super different across the board.
1: From what I can remember, it just felt really long. It felt like longer than six days. I spent a lot of time in bed or just like listening to TV shows, not necessarily watching. Went on some walks. And other than that, I didn't do much for the six days. I did get sick with a cold halfway through. So headed into the second procedure, I did have um, quite a bit of a cold. So maybe that's why I spent a lot of time in bed.
0: I'm glad that it wasn't like too horrific of an experience looking back. (laughs) Uh, I feel like some people's are not so fun and others, they're like, it didn't really bother me. So it's always interesting to hear like how different everybody is. Since you've been diagnosed, did you end up having a biopsy? No, actually, I was not offered a biopsy.
1: And I I wish that I had been offered that. So I have a lot of questions. I don't know what class of tumor I have. Lots of people who see my file say it was really small um, and assume everything will be okay. But I know just from reading on the OM community, I don't know much about the actual genetic makeup of my tumor. I did qualify for some genetic testing, though, through the hospital I go to. It was a blood test to test for the BAP1 gene, which came back negative, but no, I don't have a biopsy.
0: So obviously that's made things a little bit trickier for where you're at, you know, currently now, um, four years later. Um, so, okay, let's just kind of switch gears really fast and just talk. I know you mentioned a little bit about how you felt like you felt like one of the ways that you've coped with this diagnosis, especially early on, was that you you kind of latched on to having a person with you every single appointment, just so that you knew you had that support system with you. Um, can you maybe just think of, you know, think of a couple other ways that you have felt like helped you cope, you know, mentally and emotionally as you've been given this diagnosis and also the extra uncertainty around, you know, not having a biopsy, not really knowing much about your tumor. What's helped you kind of manage that and still live your life? Because obviously, like... You have had some amazing things happen in your life since then.
1: That's such a big question. My coping has changed drastically over the years, Um, and especially in this last year with COVID, I'm not able to bring anybody into the hospital, and when that no visitor policy was first announced, I got that sense of dread. Um, So I feel like in the past year, I've accomplished a lot. I'm going into the hospital, I'm getting eye injections by myself, I just feel a lot stronger mentally than I ever thought that I could be. I think you said it perfectly, just living life. I came up with a bit of a list of things I wanted to do. So vacations I wanted to take, um, I wanted to buy a dog, just other things like bucket list items and just putting myself back out there after treatment and starting to do all of those things. I was just able to return to my normal life. Cancer's still there at the back of my mind. I think about it probably on a daily basis, um, but just going through my daily routines has been so unbelievably helpful for me coping with that
0: anxiety. I feel like that's such a good point. Like just to remember, like we do, like we can't, we can't avoid living life just because this happened. Right. So just kind of maybe walk us through a couple of the things that you've had happen as far as how you've lived your life. Cause I know like you have done, you've done a couple different things. Obviously you took some vacations, but like when, when after your diagnosis did you and your husband meet? Oh, good question. First big thing after my treatment which
1: looking back at this, I probably wasn't ready, but I hopped on an airplane right after my second procedure. So that was to get the plaque radiation out of my eye and get the strafobus muscles reattached. Um, so while I was recovering, I actually went to Europe and I spent close to a month in Greece with one of my girlfriends, Mandy. And if anybody's ever been to Greece or if you live there, there's a lot of stairs and a lot of hiking and backpacking. Um, so that was one of the first things I did after both of my initial procedures. And that kind of got me just back out there. And then quickly after that, I met my husband and that was actually something that was really hard for me, putting myself out there to meet somebody else with The diagnosis it felt like it was weighing so heavily i felt like i was this unlovable person with cancer that i had this like egg timer attached to me just given everything you read on google with the statistics about it the potential for it to spread so i remember when i first met greg that was one of the first things i said to him was i told him i was sick and i told him parts of my story and what my diagnosis was and i was just super upfront about it And I think I phrased it as, let me know if you still want to continue dating. Greg laughed. He um, unfortunately has a lot of experience with cancer. His father passed away several years ago and he just, he's never let that be a barrier. So meeting Greg was one of the things that really got me back on track. He makes me feel like cancer is normal. He's always at all of my appointments. Right now he waits outside of the hospital. (laughs) Um, He brings our dog and he'll always do something nice for me after my appointments. So whether it be cookies or like a small trip to the cottage, he always surprised me with like a reward
0: essentially. Well, that's awesome. I feel like we all need those little things to look forward to, especially because I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel like it's almost like revisiting trauma to go to any of these kinds of appointments where I have to have, you know, eye scans done and all of the testing and the blood work, like all of the things because it just brings back like kind of the initial what I had to go through when I was first diagnosed. Absolutely.
1: Um, and it's in the same room for me, at least. Yeah, as the yeah, diagnosis. And then they come in at you room. with the eye
0: clamps and they expect you to be really still. <laughs> and you're like, eh. Uh, <laughs> <no>. Dodging it. <laughs> I'm still not used to like, I don't know if you're uh oc- ocular oncologist, if they, if they use like an, an ultrasound little, like it, the way that I describe it is it feels It's like a little wand and it's like cold and jelly feeling. And they like use that to like go over your eye. And it's the most bizarre feeling, but it's not like, it doesn't hurt. Um, But yeah, that one, that one's just very, like, I think the first time that they did the ultrasound, they were doing the ultrasound for like 30 minutes. And so it was just like nonstop of this because they were looking a lot. (laughs) So it's just always kind of fun. Kind of fun. kind Kind of not. Okay. So... You mentioned that you have a dog. Do you feel like your dog was a decision that has helped you, like just supported you emotionally and just like mentally and emotionally through this last four years? Or how, I guess, how soon did you decide to get your dog?
1: Well, I was a little bit impulsive after my initial diagnosis. I bought the trip to Greece and then I bought the dog right away. So I spent a lot of money. Sam is great. He is the best dog. He's about four years old. So same as my diagnosis. Definitely in the beginning, having a puppy just forces you to get up. You need to get out of bed. It's just somebody else to look after. So I think initially, yes, Sam was my reason for getting up for walking, for exercising. I try not to place too many of my emotions on him. Just with our training, my dog trainer's listening. She's commenting. Um, Sam is very calm. Just being around him and petting him, he he does have a way of like bringing people down around him. Yeah.
0: This is like one of the reasons I'm like, oh, maybe I should get a dog. My sister <laughs> thinks I should get a dog, but I just don't know if I'm a dog person. There are a lot of. Work. Oh, we will see. But yes, that is amazing. That Sam is such such a good friend. And that he has been like through this entire time. I feel like that's, that's, a, that's a good long time to have a good buddy. Not that your husband isn't an amazing buddy <laughs> too, I'm sure. But, you know, Sam came first. <laughs> okay, so this is kind of a little bit of a tricky question. In what ways do you feel like you could say your life has been challenged? Like because of this diagnosis? Um, I feel like you touched a little bit on just feeling feeling limited in having a relationship and that you felt frustrated by that and worried that, you know, that he wouldn't want to date you or marry you. What else do you feel like has been challenging in your diagnosis?
1: Oh, I feel like that's changed over the years. Um, initially it was the lack of independence. I couldn't see very well. I'm sure you're, you went through the same thing. Um, I relied so heavily on other people. I couldn't drive for a really long time. Just basic tasks were really hard for me. So in the beginning, that seemed to be the biggest struggle, like the physical needs. I feel like a positive is I have value connection. So I've connected with a lot of people in our OM community. I and mean, that's been a big challenge as well. Um, as you know, the risk of it spreading is basically 50-50 so a lot of these great people I've met over the years have since passed or they've gone on to develop METs um, and your relationships change then um, just because I know a lot of my friends who are currently going through treatment for that in clinical trials, um, they don't want to scare you with all of that information. They want you to keep that hope and stay positive. But that's been one of the more current challenges is connecting with like-minded people, but also balancing those worlds and not getting too caught up in that, because that that's something that does bring a lot of anxiety on for me. So I need to limit my time on the Facebook ocular melanoma group. Um, I pop in here and there, but I do shut off those notifications a lot of the time.
0: No, I feel like I have to do that too. Um, And I think that's, that's an empowering thing to realize, especially with these social media communities is yes, they're so amazing. And it's such a good and empowering thing for us to be able to you know, have Instagram to connect on and have Facebook pages. But if at the end of the day, it's not serving you in a season that you're in because you're near your scans, or it's just too triggering, it doesn't mean anything negative about you as a person. It doesn't mean you're less, you know, less strong than someone else. It just means you need to take some space. And because this is This is like a lifelong cancer watch thing. Like this is not something that, you know, you're diagnosed and then you have treatment and then they're like, oh, it's been two years. You're now cancer free. Like go ring the bell. Like you have, you have a much longer time of just waiting and hoping. And like you said, watching, watching other people go through this and hoping, selfishly hoping like that it's not you, but also, but also just really knowing how hard it is for, you know, for everyone else, because it's like your biggest fear. So I can totally understand that. Okay, so you mentioned the double vision and how hard it was to see. So, how long did you feel like the double vision lasted after they reattached the muscles in the second procedure um, when they removed the plaque?
1: So, they actually left the muscles detached through that whole week of radiation. I couldn't see anything out of that eye, though, anyways. So, I don't know if that's typical or not. But after the second surgery, my eye was kind of swollen shut. And I remember everyone around me really saying like, you have to keep the eye patch off. You have to practice opening your eye, no matter how hard it is. Um, And having double vision is really hard. I remember laying in bed, looking up and seeing two ceiling fans. And that was the moment where yeah, you're so disoriented, and I think it lasted for about two weeks. It slowly started to improve, um, but I don't think I was driving after my treatment for at least a few months. That could have just been like a bravery, anxiety thing, though.
0: Well, I totally, totally did that, too. I didn't want to drive um, yep. because it was it was really disorienting, even though like I didn't have any double vision in this eye um, in my right eye coincidentally, but I did have just a total blind spot. And that's, that's a huge adjustment to go from being able to see normally and then to not, and to try and drive and like pick up stuff and like go to the store. Like even just walking through the grocery store was overwhelming to see everything. Yeah, It was just like visually stimulating in a bad way. So the double vision did eventually get better. And then how has your vision been since then?
1: Well, about a year after my initial radiation, I developed, I think it's called radiation retinopathy. There's so many different words to describe what's happening. Um, Initially, I had some swelling, and then I had some leaky blood vessels. Um, So just the aftermath of radiation set in about a year after. I was lucky I actually had 20-20 vision for the first year after all of my treatment. And that was so surprising because they told me that I would essentially be blind in my one eye. Given the location of my tumor, they could not promise me any vision. And then I had 20-20 vision for the full year. Now I've um, done two different types of eye injections. So I started on Avastin year after my surgery. Um, so it's a type of chemotherapy that they actually use kind of off label in the eye to fix this type of radiation retinopathy. Um, so my eye didn't respond too well to that drug. And um, so recently I've made a switch to something called ILEA um, and it's going really well. I mean, they tell me that with the pinhole cover, I don't know if you've had that before you hold up this, yeah. um, this blinder thing that's supposed to stop your vision and it's got tiny holes in it with that they say my eye is 2020 I don't know if I believe that <laughs>
0: You're like, Except that I don't walk around with pinholes to look through every time so how does this work I don't understand no um, i I really love
1: eye for sure
0: yeah for sure me too what do you feel like have been maybe the greatest gifts of this diagnosis the last four years like maybe your you know top two or three like greatest gifts that you've had in in life since since being diagnosed or maybe as a consequence of being diagnosed that you wouldn't have done or wouldn't have pursued otherwise.
1: First one is I'm more present. I really I don't look into the future I think because of that uncertainty. I'm just very present in my day-to-day life and I say no when I want to say no and that in the past was really hard for me Um, and I say yes a lot to all the things I want to say yes to. I take the trip, I buy the dog, Um, so that's been a gift. I feel like before I was such a future planner um, and that really took away from me living in my present life. And just the, the second thing is the friends and the community I've met. Actually, one of my good childhood friends, her dad, had ocular melanoma. Um, So during the early days, during my first few days of my diagnosis, they were just angels. They were at my house. Um, They were helping me every day. They were on the phone with me, describing step by step what was going to happen. And they, they continued to check in on me. I'm just so lucky for all the strong friendships I've made. And just, it's a really neat community to be a part of.
0: Okay, I love that. So what are three things that you would love to pass on to a patient in your shoes who maybe they're still kind of in the the midst of uncertainty or new to their diagnosis. There still this is a super fresh for them. and even maybe someone who is a little bit further along but still not, you know in the safe zone?
1: First thing is put the phone down. Do
0: not Google anything
1: reach out to something like here in (laughs) sight or a wonderful community that has a lot of research and a lot of great resources i did myself a disservice in those first few days and i kind of went down the rabbit hole of doom as i call it so just make sure you're surrounding yourself with people or organizations that know what they're talking about being on google kind of makes it feel like it's the end and i promise it's not I would tell them that you're gonna look back and be amazed at your strength and you're a lot stronger than you think you are. Sometimes people say, oh, I don't know how you get needles in your eye. Um, I don't know either, but you just do it. (laughs) Um, The only thing that you're in control of is to show up and do what you're told and that's what you do. I guess that's my third thing. Think about what you're in control of. Don't worry about what the doctor's doing. Don't worry about all the other people Just pay attention to yourself and focus on what you are in control of. That's been one of the biggest, I guess, coping strategies or the thing that I kind of say to myself going into every single appointment.
0: Okay. Well, I totally, totally love that. Um, And I feel like, I mean I'm just going to sound like a broken record but if you're familiar with Frozen Olaf says it best <laughs> like we call this controlling what we can when everything feels out of control like we really have to focus on on the things that we have control over and sometimes sometimes that's buying the dog sometimes that's choosing to be present sometimes that's just you know eating a little dark chocolate and <laughs> having a glass of wine when you're just freaking out Okay. So what does life look like for you now? You mentioned your injections have changed over the years. And so now you have the, is it Ilya? Yeah. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. Ilya, I think. Ilya. Okay. Probably Ilya because it goes in your eye. So you have these (laughs) Ilya injections. How often?
1: Um, that changes pretty frequently. Right now, I'm at a five week schedule, which seems to be working fairly well. I think they usually start you at like three weeks, though, um, and they do about three or four injections to kind of get your eye stabilized. And then over time, they increase the time between the injections. So, I mean, we go once a month, essentially, to the hospital. We're, we're there for about a half day in Toronto, which is about an hour and a half to two hours away with traffic. I go every six months for an MRI of my abdomen and my lungs. And I also do blood tests every three months or six months.
0: And I'm sure like some of that kind of can change and evolve over time. Um, has it always been six months for you for your just your your body scams? That was
1: actually one thing they initially didn't really go over, the scan protocol. So I got really lucky. I know a few of you are listening in from the ocular melanoma group. The scan schedules from Dr. Sato are posted in that group. Um, so I just printed off a copy and provided that with my family doctor. So I'm just following along with that scan schedule, but we've always done every six months.
0: So have you have you made any changes as far as other ways that you have your family doctor monitor your health? Like have you started seeing a dermatologist regularly? Like what are, are there any other things that you've kind of had checked or watched and maybe in response to this diagnosis?
1: Don't think so. I have good intentions of getting to the dermatologist and it keeps getting pushed to the bottom of my list. I just keep, I go regularly, like as needed to my family doctor. I find I'm not there for like more general things, um, probably because I'm always at the hospital every month. So, I mean, there's a lot of doctors and nurses to talk to yes, there. Sure. Other than that, no real changes, like a couple things with diet and exercise. i like more on the non-medical side, but other than that, no changes.
0: Okay. Well, that's awesome. Okay. So speaking of diet and exercise, you mentioned, like you just mentioned that, have you made any significant changes or do you feel like you've just kind of maintained a lifestyle you've had before?
1: I'd say I've maintained level of exercise I did before my diagnosis, but the eating has changed quite drastically before my diagnosis, I was traveling a lot for work. So I was constantly eating in restaurants for every meal, eating in airports, not making the healthiest decisions. And now um, I've chosen a different job. So I'm I'm like located at home now, uh, which is great. So I'm cooking a lot um, and just making healthier choices in regards to food.
0: Oh, I feel like that makes a huge difference in how we feel too. just overall, not just leaving out any and all the research that shows that eating better is good for just making sure that you're in the healthiest place, you know, bodily for fighting cancer. Like it's still just, I feel like when I eat better, I feel better mentally. I feel like I can handle more physically. You mentioned that you didn't really feel like you were very limited after your, like after your eye treatment, And obviously you've had some adjustments, but like, did you notice anything like dizziness or did you notice any kind of like lack of coordination that came with this double vision? Like anything that you struggled with there as far as physical activity, hiking, depth perception?
1: Yeah, um, initially, I guess just fatigue was the biggest thing I struggled with walking up a hill was hard. And I don't know if that was just from being in bed for so long or like the aftermath of the treatment, Um, but it took me a while to get back to my normal activity level. Definitely dizziness in the first few days. I think that was associated with the double vision. With the radiation, like currently the retinopathy, I do have, not sure the clinical term, but I have a blind spot essentially, and it's in my eye, it's in the upper quadrant. So I am missing pieces of my sight when I look around. So I do have a hard time, especially at the movie theaters or on a ride when things are moving. Even in a TV show, I have a hard time taking in that information without getting dizzy. So that's been newer. Um, occasionally I bump into things (laughs) now, um, like I'll walk into the wall or I'll misjudge like the corner of the counter and that's been kind of new for me. So I have to do like a really good scan of the environment, um, Full, full head
0: scan before walking. Yes.
1: Yeah. And even I get a little bit uncomfortable staying in a new place. Um, I just find like walking around in the dark, it's so much easier in my own house where I know the layout.
0: Yeah, for sure. I like, I just kind of think of people, people who I know who have really limited vision or people who are blind and, or have had kids that were blind. And yeah, it's, it's a huge adjustment to be in a new space and to have to adjust to like where everything is and what you're going to hit and not hit. So, uh, I feel like that's, that's a helpful thing. So just in answer to a couple questions over here that I'm seeing in the chat, if there's fluid buildup in the eye, and the doctor is watching it, I would definitely just ask them to double check. You might, Deb, you mentioned fluid buildup. You might just suggest to the doctor that he check for radiation retinopathy and if there's anything that can be done to alleviate that. But other than that, I I mean, obviously neither of us are doctors. We are the patients. We are the patients. So we cannot offer medical advice, but I would say just follow up with the doctor if you're not comfortable with the follow-up plan. Paige, how do you feel like Your ability to advocate for yourself with doctors has changed over the years, you know, as far as questions you've had, or maybe ways that doctors have approached things that you just have been like, no, I don't really think that's the best idea. Have you offered, you know, feedback to doctors before?
1: I've learned that you basically have about 30 seconds of their time. So pre-appointment, I write everything down and sometimes I just hand them the notepad so they can see all of my questions. I've learned like don't storytell with the doctor and <laughs> be very factual and concise to get the information you want. Um, a lot of the times the clinical fellows that I'm seeing have such great information and they have more time to spend with you. So sometimes I'll even save my questions for that person because I know they'll take the time to explain things to me. I've also learned that no one else will advocate for you. So if I don't call my doctor and ask for my six month MRI, I don't get to six month MRI. So I have to put it in my calendar like a month or two in advance um, here in Canada, like it takes some time for those bookings. So if I know I need a scan in September, I need to be calling my family doctor during the summer and letting them know that this is the scan that I need. So it's been a lot to um, be organized with that stuff. And same for blood work. I need to make sure that a notification is in my calendar so I can advocate and ask for blood work.
0: Okay. I feel like that's a really good point is that, you know, if you, if, you know, and it's, it's not even, I think about trusting the doctor, but just about making sure that you know what you need for your scan protocol, for your blood work, for anything that you need medically, like you have to be responsible for making sure your doctor doesn't forget anything because Like you said, doctors don't give you a ton of their time initially with each of these appointments. So it's really important, really important to come prepared and to also just be making sure that you know what you're supposed to be having done and ensure that they're actually following through and doing that. So I love that. Thank you. Okay. Last question, unless you have anything else that you want to share. And this one is a little bit of a spur of the moment question. So I'm sorry. Uh, (laughs) I meant to tell you ahead of time and then I forgot. So, you know, the things we forget, but is there a, do you have a, a favorite song that you could say maybe right now is one that just is, it's one that you could turn to, or you could turn it on before your scans and it would help you in navigating that anxiety or just kind of pump you up to help you feel like you can just like, you can handle life.
1: Yes. Um, so I call it my cancer song. It's Brave, which I know is like everybody's song. Um, but that was the one through my whole diagnosis and treatment. I would play that on the way to the hospital. Um,
0: so okay. So who, comes, who yeah. sings this song? It's called Brave. I like, I, I have never heard of this song. So this is, you know. This oh, you'll know this
1: one. It's um, Sarah Borelli's.
0: Awesome. Okay. Well, I've got that written down. So you guys, thank you so much for joining us on, on a holiday weekend here in the States. Um, but for those of you who were able to jump in and just ask questions, we're so glad we were able to have you here, Paige. Thank you for joining us. Um, just a quick note, if you are watching this video and you have a desire to do something to help, and you're, maybe you're not quite ready to come on live and do an interview with, um, uh, with the podcast, or you're just not really ready to share your story publicly. You can still share this video you can share it to your stories you can share it to your facebook page and you can then click on one of the one of the options at the bottom is going to give you an option to add a fundraiser and you can just say this is a cause that's important to me you can give as much detail or as little detail about your story as you want and you can just say this is a cause that's important to me it would mean a ton if you would take the time to you know listen to this girl's story and donate a little bit to this nonprofit that helps patients like her this is one of the ways that as patients we can help because Fundraising for you know, organizations like A Cure in Sight for, um, for this kind of a nonprofit. This is what helps patients with financial aid. So if you are someone who needs financial aid, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. And we also fund some research. We fund research for helping find a cure and for these doctors who are you know, studying nonstop to try and understand how to make sure that people like you, like me, like everyone else who's struggling with metastatic disease at the moment, that they survive and that we get to live through this. So this is super important. And so if you feel like you could take the time to do that, to just share, at a fundraiser, if you feel willing, then that would be a huge help, a huge help to the whole patient community and to the research that we have going on right now. If you guys don't have any other questions, or if you do, I guess drop them in the comments and we'll come and find them later. But thank you again for joining us and we will see you next time. Thank you so much for joining us today on the, I believe podcast, please make sure to subscribe. And if you're so inclined, send this episode over to friends, family, and share on your social media to help spread awareness around. OM. Feel free to follow us on Facebook or on Instagram at a Thanks so much and have a wonderful day.